Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Grab your Bibles. We have something special for you this morning. We have a wonderful young man, uh, one that I've come to know over the last few years and just grown a, a just an appreciative and also just a respect for him. His name is Justin Coe. He's with one of our uh, sister, sister, uh, sister churches, Mission Bible in Tustin, and he's going to come and preach to us, and uh, I think you'll enjoy him. So if you just give him a hand, get your Bibles out, give him a hand. Justin, would you come up and share with us what's on God's heart? morning, Orange Villa. Thank you so much for having me here uh, this morning. Thank you, Pastor Rob and uh, Pastor Dustin, for the invitation uh, to get to present God's Word to you this morning. So, I don't know if it's on the screen. If it's not, we're going to be studying three verses today in the end of your Bible, or near the end of your Bible, in 1 John. 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. So while you turn there, I'm going to go and pray for us, and we're going we're gonna to hear God's Word. Heavenly Father, it is a joy and it's a privilege that we get to be here this morning. We love being able to sing worship songs that declare the wonders of who you are. And we are privileged that we get to do so in a place without fear of persecution. So Lord, we we lift this time up to you now. We ask that as, as we get to hear your word preached today, that it would draw us to a deeper knowledge and deeper understanding of who you are. Will we walk out of here with a deeper love and a renewed zeal for your word and for your people? It's in your name we pray these things. Amen. So there are certain major events in history that if I were to give you a year that corresponds to it, you would know exactly which event I'm talking about. I'll give you an example of what I mean by that. If I were to say 1776, the event I'm talking about would be Independence Day, right? United States of America, the birth of a country. Now, for us Christians, we would know if I were to say 1517, we would know that that would be the year in which the Protestant Reformation uh, came about, when Martin Luther uh, posted his 95 Theses at the door of uh, Church of Wittenberg. So we understand that there's certain correlations made right there. Now, this is one is a trick question. Let's see if anyone knows this one. 1977, major event that happened in that year. Does anyone know what that may be? Two words. Two words. Star Wars. You know, Star Wars. You know, A New Hope. And it's one of those things where if you know the story, I'm sure that most, if not all of us here, know the story. You got Luke. Uh, Skywalker, the guy who's supposed to bring balance to the force, right? And the first of the trilogy is a new hope, right? And so you see that this theme of hope is what drives the saga. It's what drives the whole storyline, the plot, you know, culminates at the very end. But you see, as Christians, we also do have a hope. However, our hope is not necessarily a new hope. It is a true hope. And that's why I titled a sermon today, A True Hope. And it's this hope that if it's placed in the right things will dictate our very actions that we do. 
It will dictate our perspective on things. So just like Star Wars, where it's given as a trilogy, I'm going to give you three points today that will help us understand what is a Christian's true hope. Point number one in your notes, uh, if you take notes, would be your past adoption as children. So you can consider it your episode number one, your past adoption as children. We see John write, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we would be called children of God, and such we are. You see, John, same John who wrote the Gospel of John, the same John who wrote Revelation at the back of your Bible, it's the same John who wrote these small little letters near the end of your Bible. And, you know, John, his purpose for writing this small letter, he actually gives it to us. If you want to turn, like, maybe one page, in chapter 5, verse 13, he tells us the purpose is for our confidence in Christ. He says, These things I have written to you, who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. So the purpose is very clear. John lays out his hand for us. He tells us he's writing this so that we have confidence in our salvation, our eternal life. And John, he's a very black or white type of guy. He's kind of like me in, in a sense where it's, he compares and contrasts. He's, it's either light or it's dark. It's either truth or it's lies. You're either loving the Father or you're loving the world. You're either a child of God or you're a child of the devil. And so with that in mind, he starts us off by saying, see how great the love the Father has bestowed on us. In other words, he's basically saying like, whoa, whoa, behold, how great is this love. As a matter of fact, that phrase right there, how great, is only used seven times in the whole New Testament. And actually, it signifies something that can be foreign and incomprehensible, almost even out of this world. The theologian John Stott would commentate in this way. He says, the Father's love is so unearthly, so foreign to us, that John wonders from what country it may come from. You see, it's such a foreign love that it's incomprehensible to us. And this love that he, he bestowed upon us, bestowed being perfect tense, being that it was done and we get to reap the benefits of it today, is that it's shown in that we are called children of God. I love how for your worship songs, you sang that one song, Child of God. I'm like, it's like if someone read my manuscript or something and knew that I was going to preach on this. But being a child of God, have, we, have you sat back and thought about what that means to be a child of God? I know we hear it all the time. And most of the time, too, it's misused in many different ways. You hear people like, oh, yeah, we're all children of God. We're all God's children. He made us. We're all his children. False. False. Absolutely false. You know, we're created in God's image. That is absolutely true. The Imago Dei. We're created in an image that was tainted by sin. So even in our image-bearing relationship with Christ, it's still not a perfect relationship because it's marred by sin. And so that's what we, we start off with. And we know that this is imputed upon us even when we were born. The moment we came out of the womb, we're born as sinners. We know that to be a fact. David, um, the King David, he, he knew that. He spoke it in Psalm 51.5. Uh, and he said, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. So there's an understanding that we come out of the womb not as children of God, but we come out of the womb as enemies of God. 
You know, the little pericope that Paul gives us in Ephesians 2, the, one of the best gospel presentations, a captive within 10 verses, basically expounds upon the idea that for the first four verses, he narrows in, or maybe first three, where he's like, hey, you are enemies of God. You are in opposition to God. You are children of wrath, sons of disobedience. All these different phrases that tells us what our true condition is apart from Christ. And you see, and this is where, you know, when you, when you come to a text like this and you see that John is saying and affirming that, hey, God showing his love and calling us children of God, that is the gospel message. That is the gospel message because we were, we were fatherless. We were actually sons of Satan, of the devil. But yet he chose to adopt us into his family and call us a child. You know, I've been privileged for the past a uh, couple years, I've had a handful of friends who chose to adopt, either foster to adopt or to actually, you know, adopt a child to call their own. And I think that that is such a powerful analogy, symbolic representation of what God did for us as someone who was so far out of his way, opposing him in everything that we do, even not thinking about him as opposing him, because if he created everything, that should be the one thing that we do is think about him. But even against all odds, he still chose to save us even while we were yet sinners, right? Romans 5, 8. And being able to now call him Abba, Father, Romans 8. We see that we do not deserve it. We never did deserve it. And it's by an act of grace, by faith alone, that this is made possible. Because of this amazing grace that we are able to receive his imputed righteousness. We, 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 you know, the gospel is that, that Christ took our sins, he nailed on the cross so that we may have his righteousness. Because of this, John says in verse one, following on, for this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. So if we've established the facts that because of our faith in Christ, we are now children of God, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Now, if you remember from from our, our Bible, what happened when Jesus entered into Jerusalem? He came, everyone's expecting him. They're like, okay, all these prophets have been talking about this Messiah guy, this guy who's gonna come and save us. And what happened? When he came, everyone was like, Hosanna, Hosanna, there he is, the Messiah is here. And then, not even a week later, what happened? Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. You see, this was the perfect God-man, truly God, truly man, who came to earth, and that's how the world treated him, right? They whipped him, scourged him, placed a crown of thorns on his head, and then they nailed him to a cross. Punishment that was for the worst of criminals. And for this reason, if the world did not know him, it would not know us. We read earlier today, you know, in, in the Gospel of John, remember, John 15, remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. If they keep my word, they will keep yours also. So there's that relationship. If, they, if God adopted us as children, guess what? The world's going to see us like they saw him, or at least they should. And John 1.10 even says it. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. And so the world do not understand us, although the world um, does not understand us because he didn't understand Christ. 
But that leads us to point number two uh, in, our, in the text, which is your future glory awaits. So we understand that because the world didn't know him, he didn't know us, but there's a future glory that awaits. Verse two goes on to tell us, beloved, now we are children of God and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we'll be like him because we will see him just as he is. Now, John is tenderly reminding his audience right here. It's like, hey, I know I said it before. We are now children of God. But do you see that it's very interesting. He uses kind of the now and not yet kind of thing. Now we're children of God. It's established, right? We understand that it was uh, it was a uh, perfect tense. It happened. We, we are uh, having that, that privilege bestowed upon us. We get to reap the rewards of it. But there's a future aspect of it that has not yet appeared. And when, when he appears, we'll be like him because we'll see him as he is. That is that future aspect that has not yet come. And partially the reason why I was asking how much time that I have is because I get it I get it for all of you who've been under sound biblical teaching and knowing your pastors. I know you're going to look at verse two and you'll be like, okay, I see it when he appears. That's eschatological. It is end times theology. It's at its finest. So I didn't want to go and debate different views on how Christ is going to return because the one fact remains, okay? One truth remains out of all of that. I can boil it down. Christ will return, Okay. So it doesn't matter what your views are necessarily. Um, I'm pretty sure that excludes Preter's view for all of you. But, but you know, I, so we can all agree on that one. But besides that, though, Christ will return. That's a fact. We will either, he'll either return in our lifetimes or we're going to go and pass and be with him. But in either case, we will one day see him face to face. We will one day see him face to face, and we'll be like him because we'll get to see him as he is. And you see, like, it's, uh, you know, in kindergarten, I remember this pretty vividly. Um, when I was in kindergarten, you, you know, have you ever thought about, like, in kindergarten, what do you learn? I, I've always wondered that. You know, looking back, I'm like, you can't learn math, you can't learn literature, you can't learn poetry. You're just kind of like, you're learning how to interact with people is basically what you learn at five years old, I think, right? Five years old is roughly where you're at? Right about there? But I remember one time I was uh, coming into class and the teacher brought out this glass terrarium and inside kind of threw, uh, threw a few caterpillars in there, threw a bunch of leaves, put a little heat lamp on it and then just let it, let it be. And as little five-year-olds, you're like, oh, like what's gonna happen? We don't know what's gonna happen. And so like day by day, we're like, okay, like all we're seeing is little, caterpillar, little caterpillars eating little holes out of the leaves. We're like, nothing is happening. Don't know what's going on. Um, over time, guess what happened? It's no longer a little caterpillar, but it was, it's in the little cocoon, right? That's what it's called, cocoon? It's in a cocoon. We're like, oh, something happened. And then it gets boring for a little while too because it just stuck like that for a little while. But then one day, walked into class, and then it's like, whoa, when did you replace it with a butterfly? It's like, no, it wasn't replaced. It just, that's what happened. It turned from caterpillar to butterfly. You know, in the same aspect, we are here on this earth today. We've been called children of God. That's established. That's a fact for those who have placed their faith in Christ. But yet there's this future glory that awaits. 
There's that future glorification that is to happen. And that's us being the caterpillars now, waiting to be a butterfly in the future. And, you know, this whole idea of, of glorification, I get it in church, church talk. You, you hear like propitiation, glorification, sanctification, all of these Asian words in there. I get it. You hear it a lot. You know, we're in this process in life where we're being sanctified by the Spirit. But this thing about glorification is basically when Christ is going to make us, we're going to be perfect. We're going to be not hindered by our flesh, hindered by our sins, hindered by all our past experiences, hindered by anything. We can see God for who he is because we're no longer defiled by what sin is in this world. Those things will work out for good. But how many people know what happens in the next two verses? For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to come conform to the image of his son, right? Conformity to the image of his son, Jesus, is that sanctification process. And now the culmination of all of it happens in verse 30, where he says, and these whom he predestined, he also called, and these whom he called, he also justified, and these whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, fun fact, did you catch it? Glorified is in the aorist tense, meaning that it happened. But didn't I just say that it hasn't happened? And a lot of commentators kind of banter a little bit about like the meaning behind it. But the best one that I saw, the most concise view, I would say, is that Paul was so certain of this chain of events being that it will happen that he can write it as a past tense because it is going to happen. He's so confident in the fact that it will happen so he can write it as such. And until then, we are incapable of seeing God face to face. So sometimes I love that you guys have theologically sound worship songs. I love it. So whoever picks the songs for worship team, like I, I applaud, I applaud. You know, because oftentimes too, and I hope this doesn't go off on a tangent, but you hear so many contemporary worship songs that don't make any sense. You know, you're calling like, hey, I want to see God. I want to see your glory right now. And it's like, no, because guess what? If we were to see him right now, we'd fall flat on our face. As a matter of fact, Moses, probably more righteous than all of us, the guy who led the Egyptians out of, uh, or the Israelites out of Egypt, you see that this man did, you know, did the work of God, led his people out, uh, went up Mount Sinai, brought back the tablets, broke it because of their rebellion, their idolatry, did it again. And guess what? At one point, Moses even was like, you know what? I know I'm your man. You've been using me and all. And in chapter 33, he was like, can I see you? Can I see your face? And guess what God told him? God was like, you can't see my face for no man can see me and live. Now another pop quiz, who knows Uzzah? I think I'm pronouncing his name correct. Yuza, Uza, right? Another story of what God's glory is actually like. You know, this guy, they're in charge of lifting and, you know, carrying the uh, Ark of the Covenant around. And the Ark became a little bit wobbly and is about to fall. And Yuza, thinking that he was going to be the superhero of the day, was like, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold it up. Guess what? He touched the Ark of the Covenant and he fell flat on his face, dead. You see, God's glory incomprehensible. We won't see it in this life, but that's something that we can look forward to as believers um, one day in heaven. And with that being something that we can look forward to, 
that the promises that God will one day glorify us and we get to see him as he is, John now tells us what we are to do today. So to complete our, our trilogy, our saga, point number three in your notes, if you're taking notes, would be your present hope fixed on Christ. Your present hope fixed on Christ. Verse three. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. You see, I started off this sermon by saying hope is a powerful thing. Everyone has hope in something. Mostly it's misdirected. If you're not Christian, you probably have it misdirected on either your wealth, your health, or something else. But hope is a powerful thing. And John tells us exactly what we are to hope for. He tells us in verse two, the whole time that I was talking about that is he's setting up the backdrop because in verse three, if we have this hope fixed on him, on that future that is to come as, as children of God, that, that future hope and promise that he has given us, being able to see him face to face, being that, that perfect butterfly, that hope that is fixed on him will cause us to purify us, cause us to purify ourselves. Not too long ago, I think this was about a month ago, our church, or my church, um, every quarter does uh, a men's ministry kind of teaching class. And they call it an NBC Dudes Hang. I know, original, Dudes Hang. I was not part of the naming committee, so don't give me grief for it. I was not the one. But in any case, before we went into a time of um, studying God's word together, uh, there were some of the dudes outside and they were uh, talking about, you know, trying to convince me, hey, you should get a motorcycle. We can all ride together because that's what cool people do, apparently, you know? You ride motorcycles. So they were trying to convince me, hey, get a motorcycle, whatever. So I was out there, and they were kind of talking about, like, you know, when you're riding your motorcycle, if you're trying to make a turn, you see, like, especially when you're on the canyons, and you see, like, that's the turn I got to make, you keep your eyes at the end of that turn. You keep it there, and then you will magically go towards that direction. Don't know how it is, but you got to do that. You got to keep your eyes where you're going. Because the fact of the matter is, if you're wanting to go there, but you're keeping your eyes straight right in front of you, guess what? You're going to go straight. <laughs> you're going to crash. You're probably going to burn. You might die. You might see Christ sooner than you want. <laughs> but all that to say, though, our hope in Christ is what we have to constantly fix our gaze upon. That is the light at the end of the tunnel that we have to have our eyes fixed upon. Spurgeon put it this way, without Christ, there is no hope. He's the only one that can give us true hope. He is the focus of our, our eyes. He is the direction in which we are to go to. You see, in good times and in bad, whether life is going well or life is giving you trials, if you fix your gaze upon Christ, the hope that he has given you, the hope of a future that he has promised for you as a child of God, nothing can rattle your world, right? You stand grounded upon the truth of scripture. You fix your eyes upon that. And guess what he said? Guess what John said at the very end? This hope that's fixed on the right thing, on Christ, on his return, will purify yourself. And I get it. This is also one of those tension moments where it's, okay, God is the one who saves me. God is the one who sanctifies me through his spirit. What does it mean that I am to purify myself? And if you were to ask me how to explain that, I would say it's two sides of the same coin. Is God the one sanctifying me? 
Yes. Am I to sanctify myself? Yes. Why? Yes. It just is. You know, it's, it's one of those paradoxes that you just have to come to accept it for what it is. But it makes a lot of sense, though. If you think about it, logically speaking, if heaven being glorified is something that is to happen, there's work to be done in preparation for that, right? What you see and what you hold as your hope and your expectations should drive what you do today and for the rest of your lives. And that is what John is saying when he says, hey, this hope fixed on Christ will purify you. If one thing, it should do one thing really well. This hope that you fix on him should help you to love Christ more. And everything that flows from that would be that action of purification in your lives as you slowly but surely become more like Christ in everything that you do, everything that you say, to all the interactions that you make, even when the world is persecuting you, you're still joyful because you know that Christ is going to return. You're going to be one day with him, seeing him face to face. You know, one of the biggest joys and also at the same time, the biggest source of anxiety and worry is weddings. And I want to congratulate, you know, Donald and Bree. I'm sure all of you know them. I'm sad Bree left because I, I didn't tell her I was going to give a shout out to you guys. But, you know, weddings, it literally is one of those things where you're looking forward to it, right? You're looking forward to it. You're like, you guys got the date already set. It's on your mind. But everything that happens before then, you got a lot of work, right? You got uh, a venue you got to book. You got catering you got to figure out. You got guest lists you got to figure out. You got so many things. And I, I will assure you of this, two weeks before you guys actually get married, you're going to realize like, oh, who f- whoa, we forgot something. Name it. You're going to forget something like, oh, the little, you know, little number tags on the table or whatever it is, the small little trinkets that you're supposed to give guests. I get it. It's going to happen. But all this source of worry, all this that goes on before your wedding day, for all of those who are married, I'm hoping you can, you can relate. And I'm not, so, you know, I'm, I'm assuming, I'm hearing this from other people. But the day that you walk down the aisle, when the groom is standing right there and you see the bride come in, you know, walking down the aisle for the first time, you see one thing. None of that stuff matters anymore. You know, none of the preparation matters. You, all you're going to see is ugly cries from everyone. And you're going to be like, whoa, this is it. This is the day. This is the moment. It's here. You see, friends, Christ is the groom. The church is the bride. We know we are his children. We know what is to come. We know that's our hope. That's where we fix our eyes upon. But guess what? It doesn't neglect all the stuff that happens beforehand, beforehand, right? There's preparation to be done. There's work to be done. There's planning to be done. And that's why John says, purify yourselves. Because this hope is a purifying hope. It'll cause you to be pure as he is pure. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is so good. It teaches us about you teaches us about how great you truly are. And it gives us a hope, a true hope that endures all things. And Lord, I get it. For most of these people here, this may not be new information. 
But that's not the point. The point is for you to reorient our thoughts and to fix our eyes upon Christ, upon his return, upon the future promises that you have given us as your children. Help us to walk in confidence, knowing that you will accomplish the things that you promised. Help us to be lights in this world so that others may see it and may praise you and glorify your name because of it. And ultimately, Lord, help us to have a deeper love and affection for you, for you are worthy of all of it. It's in your name we pray. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.